This is Shine On, the Health and Happiness Show, and Ella's Leash Production. Heard as a podcast around the world, but heard first on radio stations 100.7 WHUD-FM and 920-1260 and 1420-AM, all in New York's Hudson Valley. Shine On, bringing you healers and dreamers and people who want to make life richer. It's your time to shine on. Hi, it's Casey. Thank you so much for tuning in to Shine On today. We've got two inspiring guests. The first, Michael Clinton, who wrote the book Roar. And coming up, Sarah Payton, who will teach us how to nurture the part of our brain that heals with self-kindness. But first, let's figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life. After a 40-year career with Hearst Publishing, Michael Clinton wants to help us roar into what's next. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is as I was stepping out of the day-to-day of a 40-year magazine publishing career, and I would read a lot and do some research, I would find that everything that was being written was about winding down. And, you know, I wanted to really explore how you can wind up, because if you're 50 or 60 and you're healthy, you have a good shot of living to be 90. So um, there's a lot of living you can do if you uh, really put your mind to it, your imagination to it. All right. Now, when you say uh, Roar will help you fulfill your dreams before it's too late, when do we know if it's too late? (laughs) It's never (laughs) too late. It's never too late. I think the the, the ROAR is an acronym, which um, is it, it breaks down sort of a, a process. I, I, I also interviewed 40 individuals who I call them the reimagineers, people who are constantly reimagining and reinventing themselves. Um, and you can do that at 50, 60, 70, 80. Um, in fact, uh, today's New York Times is a story about people falling in love in their, in their late 80s. So you can have lots of evolution and change at any time during your life. Beautiful. Never too late. Reimagine yourself. That's R. Own who you are. Act on what's next. Reassess your relationships. R-O-A-R. So reimagine yourself. Okay, we can, we can do that. We can, you know, dream big and picture something wonderful for the second half. But how do you own who you are? Well, part of owning who you are is sort of taking a real assessment as to where you are right now in your life. You know, we've all made good decisions, bad decisions. We've all lived, uh, you know, 45, 50 plus years. And so we know who we are and you've got to own your situation. And that takes, you know, a real hardcore realistic look at where you are with your health, with your financial well-being, with your age. And I like to say that 60 is not the new 40. I like to say that 60 is the new 60. So own it and be the new 60. And, um, you know, own own that you are going to have, you know, a last day on Earth. And what are you doing to prepare for that? So go to 90, work backwards. What has been your legacy? What has been your contribution? What do you want to accomplish in your life? So that's the own the own chapter. Wow. What do people do if they don't know what they want to accomplish in their life? They've just worked for 40 years. They're tired, <laughs> Michael. Great, great question. Um, I like to say two things. One, go back to your younger self. You know, what did you leave on the what did you leave on the shelf when you were in your 20s? I had, it was a great interview with a fellow who had a long-time business career, but he always wanted to be a social worker, and his father would not fund his education if he went into that field of work. So at 50, 
in his early 50s, he quit and he moved into the social justice uh, area. So he went back to his younger self. The other thing I would say is um, the, the people who I interviewed spent a good year or more really mining their 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 background, their skills, their what I call the SWAT, which is the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats in their life. You have to put in the work uh, to really figure out what you want to do next. Right. And that's a very individual journey. Beautiful journey that you can start maybe before you retire. So mine for your strengths, weaknesses, and what was the third thing you said? Opportunities. Opportunities. And, and threats. And you're absolutely right. You should start that process. You know, too many people say, I'll figure it out when I get there. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not the answer. You have to sort of start building a parallel track before you flip that switch. Right. You know, we've got empty nester moms and dads who listen, but I got an email from a woman just yesterday who she's not only an empty nester, but now her grown children are doing their own thing on the holidays. Everyone's scattered mm. about, and she's saying, mm. I don't know what my purpose is anymore. Mm. How do we help somebody like that? Well, bust out. Now's the time to think about maybe taking a trip. You know, if you're by yourself, if you're single, there are lots of organizations where you can join groups. I always like to say, if you know, it's a Thanksgiving holiday, you can get a good five-day trip in somewhere. I mean, go, go domestic. You know, go to Santa Fe, one of my favorite places, or Charleston, or New York City, or wherever you like. Go with some, ask around, see if other friends and or family members want to join. But now's the moment to sort of bust out and do something that you've been thinking about, but just haven't gotten around to it. And right. so rewrite, rewrite the script. Michael Clinton is our guest. His book is Roar into the Second Half of Your Life. Tell us about some of the people you interviewed for this book. Well, they were from all walks of life. Um, one of my favorites was a woman who was 53 years old. She was a book editor her whole career. And at 53, she decided that she was going to become a doctor. Wow. And yeah, that's quite the... She tells her story, which was quite a circuitous journey, I might also add that she got all of her education paid for through scholarships. There are great organizations like Scholarship Owl in many states that have um, free college for people at 60 or over. And so you have to do the, the, the legwork to figure it out. You know, she confronted some ageism in the American medical school system, so she ended up going to the Caribbean. Um, and she's now in her early 60s, and she's a doctor. Ugh, so, that. you know, love that story. Yeah. It was a really great story. One other story that really inspired me was a man who was 50. He lost his business. He lost his wife, his marriage, and he realized he had to go to AA. Mm. And he said he was sitting under a tree at 50 and saying, well, the rest of my life's up to me now. And he got involved in um, horse therapy. And he now runs a sanctuary um, in Arizona for abused and neglected horses that he takes in. And he uses those horses for adults and children with uh, autism in terms of horse therapy. And, you know, he's found a wonderful purpose in his life through his own his own situation as he went back to his younger self and got reconnected into horses. Uh, I got chills. That's such a wonderful story. (laughs) Michael Clinton, the book is Roar. Now tell me back up a bit about this scholarship owl. I never heard of that. You know, it's a website. There there are lots of um, there are lots of sources for people in midlife who want to go back to school. 
you know, a lot of people say, well, I can't afford it, I don't have the time. Well, first of all, you make the time. Second of all, there are lots of Pell Grants, federal grants for uh, people in midlife. There are lots of scholarship owls as the source for um, scholarships for people. There's uh, There are many midlife transformation um, uh, courses at a variety of universities and colleges. One of the ones that I like because it's very affordable and it's very it's a year-long program is with the University of Minnesota. And, you know, Harvard and Stanford have them as well. But, you know, there's a lot of, um, and, they, and many of them give, give scholarships and grants for people to be in those midlife transformation programs. So, you know, it's a good old-fashioned Google search. I mean, you know, you just, you'd be amazed at how much, how much money is there uh, for people who want to retrain and learn something new. Right. There are people listening who, who are saying, I would love to, I would love to, but I'm afraid. Where do you get the courage for this kind of leap? Courage is such a, um, an individual trait, isn't it? And I think that what, what I like to say and what I learned through so much of this and through the research that we did is that taking that first step <clears throat> is always the, the most critical thing. So, you know, let's use an example of someone who wants to um, start an exercise regimen and they don't know where to begin. And I always say, buy a pair of athletic shoes and go to the local high school track and walk around the track a few times and then start a little jogging. And then before you know it, you might be doing a little running. But you have to, you know, th- that doesn't take huge courage. That just that just takes, you know, driving and motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yes, taking that first step. And you can prepare yourself, you know, mentally for that step. You know, that means leaving a career that you might have had or a job that's at a dead end or a relationship or leaving leaving a city. But you've got to do the work, obviously, and you've got to set up the practical steps as to what's it going to look like. What are the practical things that will, that will play out? And there's a great story in the book of a woman who, Colleen, who found herself in New York City without a job. And simultaneously, she had met a guy who she was dating in Washington and um, he invited her to come live with him in Washington, and she didn't know if she had the courage to do it because she had a life in New York, but she took the leap. She took the step. They've now been married seven years, mm. I might add. But, yeah, it's that first step yeah. you have to do. And I think the first step here is you go out and get the book Roar into the Second Half of Your Life by Michael Clinton. There you go. Perfect. Where can people find you? <laughs> the author's website is RoarByMichaelClinton.com. I'm thrilled to say that we've been number one on Amazon in Midlife Transformation for a couple of weeks, uh, and we've hit some other bestseller lists. So I think people are, people are responding to the book because I think a lot of people are thinking about what's next for me. That's Michael Clinton. His book is called Roar, and we hope it inspires you to imagine some new possibilities. Imagine what life would be like if your inner voice was kind and supportive. Sarah Payton has a couple of books for that. The Your Resonant Self and a Your Resonant Self Workbook, and it's a guided tour through the brain with self-compassion. And we go, oh my God, there's the amygdala, and look at what it does. And of course I would be reactive. I don't know what your resonant self means. 
Well, what it means is that we very rarely get any modeling that says, turn towards yourself, be kind to yourself, love yourself up, be warm. Not in the way of like all the self-care to-do lists, take a bath, use bath salts, give yourself chocolate, don't give yourself chocolate, have some tea, whatever it is. All those things are doing what we're really wanting to move towards is kind of a being state with ourselves, a being state of warmth and understanding where we go, oh, of course you're grumpy, honey. (laughs) Right. Got it. So that's your resonant self. Your resonant self is having a personal relationship with your own personality? (laughs) That's a beautiful way of putting it. It's like letting there be a part of ourself that really turns towards ourself with warmth and love, which actually in the brain, there really is that part. So it's not far-fetched at all. It's just that we never learn how to use it. Take me into the brain and show me that part, please. <laughs> so as we travel into the brain and move along the, the neural channels, what we find is that just behind the forehead is the part of the brain that's able to turn towards the emotional part of the brain that's deep inside, between the ears, deep in there, and go, oh... Sarah, or, oh, Casey, look at that. Well, of course you would be having this emotional experience. Of course you're delighted, or of course you're sad, or of course you're afraid, or of course you're frustrated. And there's this kind of an internalized sense of a warm understanding that's possible when we kind of awaken this part behind the forehead to its capacity, to its possibility, to its responsibility to be kind to us. What is this part of my brain called? The prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex. Now tell me, in Brainland, is this the part that um, doesn't get fully grown until we're in our 20s? Oh my God, yes. We don't get fully myelinated. We don't get to use it to its fullest extent, which means that all of us grown-up people who are older than 25 should be walking around and just being really kind to all of the people who are under 25 so that they get this modeling, so that they get to go, ah, I make sense emotionally. Right. What if we don't make sense emotionally? Oh, man. It just tears up our whole cortisol system. It's like most, and most of us really are living this way, where we're, we're saying to ourselves, well, that doesn't make sense. I'm too sensitive. I shouldn't be reacting this way. Why am I sad? I don't know why I'm sad. And there's this kind of constant uh, self-accompaniment of, of incomprehension yeah. that we're trying to live with, which actually, if we look at the way that humans work, uh, throws our immune system into an uproar. It makes our stress system really reactive. It's like when we don't make sense to ourselves, then it, there's this pervasive feeling that something's wrong. Right. And that gets reflected in our immune system and our stress capacities and, and so on. All right. I want you to repeat that sentence again. When we don't make <laughs> sense to ourselves... Yeah, we're, uh, when we don't make sense to ourselves, it, there's this pervasive feeling that something's wrong. We're creating the worst case scenario for humans, which is uh, living with people that we don't make sense to. So we're, we don't make sense to ourselves, and we're living with ourselves, and it's this constant sense of disquiet and, and that something's wrong or there's something wrong with us. Right. So it's so important that we make sense to ourselves. So I think a lot of people have lights and whistles flashing right now because they may have spent many years 
thinking, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? Why am I upset all the time? Why am I crying all the time? Why can't I stand to be in the room with that person or go to this place or do this thing? Exactly. But you're telling me there's a part of my brain that really would say, of course you should feel this way. Right. Whether we're right or wrong? I mean, our feelings aren't right or wrong. Our feelings just are. You know, if we have a disquiet about something, it's usually based on a historical experience of something being difficult. So if I'm afraid to be a public speaker, I probably got shamed when I was little for public speaking. And my amygdala says, no, this is not a good idea. So it's not like we're saying, okay, go hide in a closet, Sarah, forever. It's like we're saying, Sarah, of course you would be nervous or upset or worried about being being shamed with your public speaking. It's like... Like there's this gentleness to it that's not about just turning ourselves loose to follow our worst uh, our worst impulses. It's more like we're going with a little kid, like if we were with a little kid who was worried about something. Yeah. But, but, you know, we would be holding their hand and walking with them and going, yeah, of course. And what do you think? Do you want to try it anyway? Yeah. And the little kids usually go, yeah, I want to try it anyway. Or sometimes they go, no, I don't want to try it at all. And then maybe if we're being really gentle, we would, you know, kind of kind of make room for that. But sometimes things have to be done. But even when they have to be done, there's this way to be accepting and gentle with what the feelings are. Sarah Payton is our guest. Your resonant self and your resonant self workbook from self-sabotage to self-care. What does self-sabotage look like? Well, self-sabotage looks like uh, many different things. Um, It can look like getting into bad relationships with people that aren't kind to us, even though we know that we would like to be in relationships with people who are kind to us. It can look like always procrastinating, never finishing stuff. It can look like uh, having an email that just overwhelms us, so we just turn away from the computer and never answer the email, and there we are a week and a half later going, dang it, I should have answered that email the week and a half ago. Or, or it can be some of the things that we do, like never exercising or, or uh, not getting out of bed when we want to get out of bed or not going to sleep when we want to go to sleep. There are so many ways that we don't take care of ourselves. Yeah. And, and they are actually all based on really important things. I was working with a lady who was always late. And so I said, well, what, you know, what if we go from this, from the angle of this making perfect sense? What if it makes total sense that you're always late instead of you being stupid and incompetent? And and what if instead there's something really important about being always late? What if you made yourself a promise to always be late? And she looked, she got this light bulb in her eyes, and she was like, oh, my God, I remember the promise. I remember the promise. I was a teenager. I was being beat up for being late for something when I wasn't my, when it didn't have anything to do with me. And I thought, screw them all. I'll I'm never just going to be on late. time. Yep. That's right. That's right. I'll show them all. Yep. yep. Wow. Yeah. All right. So we're promised a few aha moments with your resident self and your resident self workbook, I guess. Yes, indeed. I didn't know that I was doing this. I didn't know it was my amygdala I was dealing mm-hmm. with. But over the years, having spent many years thinking I am the worst person on the planet, I developed an inner voice Mm -hmm. that really lets me off the hook every single time to the point where it's almost dangerous. And I I call her my um, Glinda the Good Witch. And oddly, she sounds a lot like you, Sarah. Oh, I'm fun. (laughs) That's so cool. But I will be like 
You know, my husband, I always say, he gets the worst me. He gets the tired, grouchy, hungry, angry me. And I'll just fire off like... And then I'll say to myself, wow, that was really awful. And then my inner Glinda the Good Witch says, that's okay, Casey. You're a nice person. You can go apologize. You're... I really... I have Glinda the Good Witch in my head. She has got my back. Oh, that is so 100%. cool. hundred percent. But oh. um, until you get your own Glenda the Good Witch, yeah. life can be very difficult. It can be so difficult because the, the way that our brain works is it creates this automatic voice that you're talking about. It's called the default mode network. And this automatic voice can just beat us up like nobody's business. It's better at beating us up than anybody else possibly could be. The default mode network, what's that for? What's the purpose of this? The purpose of the default mode network is actually not to beat ourselves up. It's to kind of collect all of the social stuff in our world and pull it all together and make a comprehensive picture out of it. But when we've lived through trauma, we tend to have like these trauma sinks that the default mode network falls into. So instead of being able to do its job of collecting all the information that needs to be remembered and integrated, it instead falls into a trauma sink and it goes, oh my God, I didn't do this and I didn't do this because I'm a horrible person. What is your scientific background? I luckily have no scientific background, <laughs> <I am. laughs> which means that I could talk about this stuff in a way that the lay person can understand. Right. I, uh, I'm just a total neuroscience geek. I'm like walking around reading neuroscience articles going, aha, I was just reading about the neurobiology of sadness this weekend. For hours, I was poring over this article going, oh, and this has this implication, and this means this. So that's what I do. Right. I am... I am your friendly neighborhood neuroscience geek. You're a neuroscience geek. Okay, I wonder if you know what, because we talked about the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of our brain that can teach us to have compassion for ourselves. Yes? Yep. Yep. What happens in that prefrontal cortex that's the decision maker too, it doesn't get fully formed till we're over 21. Uh, what happens if you experience trauma before your prefrontal cortex is fully formed? Well, it impacts that default mode network. Right. It makes the default mode network. Little kids, especially before the age of nine, but all people, but especially kids before the age of nine, blame themselves for everything that goes wrong. Right. It's a brain thing. They don't have the, the neural networks that allow them to really see the world and blame people Uh, both themselves and others for exactly what they've done. Instead, everything is the child's fault. So we carry that explanation uh, into the larger world. Like, that's why we're saying, that's why we're making it global. Like, we make one mistake and we're like, oh, man, I should kill myself. Because there's been this one mistake when, you know... If they were, if if we were looking at anybody else, that wouldn't be the the conclusion that we would draw, right? Right. I, you just gave me a great big aha. I always knew that kids took everything personally, and because yeah. they were the center of their own universe, and and like say if there's a divorce, the kids blame themselves or something yeah. like that. They blame themselves, and now yeah. you just explained it to me because they don't have the point of reference or the neural network to say, exactly. look at the bigger picture. There's so exactly. much more going on here than you but they can't see it 
That's oh. right. That's so right. I, and then, of course, that takes us into this, you know, self-critical voice right. as a grown-up because we carry this, you know, way of looking at the world and making sense of the world from our childhoods, all of us do. And as we start to kind of let our grown-up brain take over and go, oh, yeah, there was a lot going on there. Yep, no wonder my parents got divorced. Or, yeah, no, of course, I was only, I was only eight years old. No wonder I couldn't protect my, my uh, sister from my stepfather, you know? Right. There's like these huge things that people just carry an incredible weight of responsibility about because they formed the idea about what the responsibility was when their brain was too little to be able to really see the whole big picture. Wow. So people, yeah. many people walking around today with a judgment upon themselves, yes. a conviction upon themselves, a weight yes. upon themselves made yes. by a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old brain. That is exactly right. We got to get the workbook. Yes, yes, yes. Your resonant self and your resonant self workbook. If you were going to put another word in there beside resonant, what would it be? Maybe like I'd put two words, maybe warm understanding. Yeah. Your warm understanding self. Yeah. All right. What else do we need to know, Sarah Payton? Just remember, if you have a bad idea about yourself, it's not truth, it's trauma. Oh, my God. That's like the best bumper sticker ever. Yeah. I need to lie down on the floor now and just let that one wash over me. Go mm. ahead. Say it again. Yeah. yeah. It's not truth. It's trauma. Sarah with an H. Peyton, P-E-Y-T-O-N dot com. And our thought for the day comes from Glinda, the good witch, who said, Home is a place we all must find, child. It's not a place where you eat or sleep. Home is knowing, knowing your mind, knowing your heart, knowing your courage. If we know ourselves, we're always home, anywhere. Shana. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show for your entertainment only. Heard Sunday mornings on 100.7 WHUD and 920, 1260 and 1420 AM, all in New York's Hudson Valley. Subscribe to Shine On on iTunes and SoundCloud and catch a show anytime at Casey.co. That's K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. Shine On.